This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Ladies and gents, hippies and hitmen, sax players and government snitches, feds and flatlanders alike, welcome to Increment Vice. I saw it, and I utterly and immediately adored it. Because I feel that a lot of my love of this movie and why I'm actually a little nervous to be talking about it is that I I don't want to deconstruct it. I don't want to because I don't know if I can exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I'm constantly grasping, which is why I love it so much and why I keep returning to it. Or it seems to be a very conventional noir in its structure and its approach. But it's also informing you like this film is not supposed to make sense. The entire point of the mystery it's not going to make sense. And you get that the moment you hear someone is technically Jewish but wants to be a Nazi. I wonder if I'll ever rewatch this movie again. <laughs> I guess you're watching it so many times. I'm sort of like, I wonder if it's going to need another five years with me. And it's something that you learn when you're crafting mysteries that a little bit of coincidence is okay. And mm -hmm. in fact, it, it suggests these great things at work. Yeah, when you live through that, when you live through an era where everybody's crazy, where it's all kind of crazy, how how do you stay sane? How do, what do you hold on to? What's your anchor and I think decency is a really good answer. I think Doc is, for him, that's the one gesture. One of the similarities between, say, a druggy movie or story and a hard-boiled detective story is the they're both about finding the interconnectedness of everything. The Part of the reason I requested this scene is it's, it's one of the moments in cinema from the last decade that has stayed with me the longest because <laughs> I love, I actually love chocolate-covered bananas. I, usually... and I feel like we all have a suspicion that there's larger forces going on that we can't control um, that are orchestrating things in a way that we can't even see. And I, I like that he kind of, again, oriented it in this sort of female gaze along with male gaze. I, I do like the way that those two things complement each other in the movie. But Roland just really, I think he really dug down like incredibly deep to mm -hmm. give this layered, very nuanced, very pathos-driven performance. And for me, part of the appeal of Inherent Vice versus a movie like, say, Chinatown, which I also love, um, but, you know, Chinatown, the plotting is like a Swiss watch. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it very, it's very clear. There's a lot of – it's very complicated, but there's a lot of clarity to it. And I think they each have different appeals, and they're each equally valid. And I think part of the appeal of Chinatown is that it gives shape to life's mysteries and complexities. And I think part of the appeal of Inherent Vice is that it respects life's mysteries and complexities. He's <laughs> sucking that banana down, man. Yeah, but, and I gotta uh, tell you, those those don't taste very good. Those bananas. I, I'm. You know what? I bless my guests. When I listened that, yeah, yeah. When I listened to that episode, I I was really shocked at your your displeasure with the chocolate covered banana because I find the chocolate covered banana to be delicious, <laughs> and that's not a sexual euphemism. 
I know where you're going. Okay. It's my. I think it's my favorite. So go ahead. It's the part where he's talking to Sortilege, oh and she's God, like you, touching his this face. Is it, this is it. Oh, you're doing it. You're doing it. This and is my scene. And he's waving the postcard, and he's just like, I just feel like I have to help that guy. Oh. Like he just has this. Oh man. And you're like, is that what the movie's about? I don't know what I just saw. Me neither. In fact, I don't even want to know. <laughs> and that, like those, that exchange, like that's that's the the manifesto for the entire film. I mean, that's like that's what the whole movie ultimately boils down to. But then we all make it about other stuff because we need it exactly. to be about that, exactly. and it is about greed, and it is about all these things. But it's like I have found myself going into his movies being like, I can't wait for this to be about the textual subject matter that it never is <laughs> it never, and i and it's is. like at a certain point we have to stop asking it to be because i do think he finds these really interesting milieus and he soaks in them but then he uses them to tell i think ultimately very simple stories that i think almost always are just about like all you need is love because with any opening weekend you have the ads in your head and you know the trailers obviously yeah. are selling something different in this yeah. movie so it's you're like oh am i seeing lebowski am i seeing something that's a little more sure um, as opposed to this sort of meditation on, you know, time. Totally. And th I mean, that's what I think is so exciting about this this movie is is this feeling of like you get lost in just enjoying it and mm. and in enjoying the moments and you lose your footing amidst like all of the other things that are happening. And and, you know, the the technical detective plot, <laughs> like the the place in history that they're at. And I think that in that sense, like it is it is as much as this movie is sort of a fantasy and psychedelic in its its ways, like it is extremely historically accurate to what it was like to be alive in Los Angeles in 1970. Mm -hmm. You know, in this moment um, with Nixon, as we see in this scene, but also after the Manson murders, um, after Altamont, like this feeling of, of, and it's something, you know, Joan Didion used this phrase a few years previous to this, but this idea of like the center will not hold. It feels like it's an astrological detective story. <laughs> it, it's this dreamy, like, you know, she talks about everything being in a fog in, in this sort of state, but it's like the movie kind of just wafts through itself. Because then when I did interview Paul Thomas Anderson, and it was something I remember he's, I heard him say multiple times when he was promoting the movie was that he, for him, he had this feeling of giggle and give in, of just like, <laughs> sort of like, you're going to get a little lost. You're not going to totally get it. But, like, just give yourself over to it. It's about love, baby. It's, like, it's <laughs> it's one thing that you say quite a bit, but I would say to you that, you know, and to speak non-specifically but about personal experiences, there are times where you've been to an ex or been with an ex and the person that you're being with in that moment is not that person. And the person that yeah. they're being with is also not that person. It is an idealized memory. It is like a Polaroid photograph. It's a sunny, sepia dream. And I think it's fair to say that the A plot of the movie that begins with Shasta and Wolfman is really about the destruction of a romance. This is yeah. kind of a great breakup movie, right? Where Shasta and Doc are in the middle of this breakup and they have complex feelings for one another and they're kind of together, but they're kind of not. And they're kind of these orbiting phantoms where they come into each other's lives and they fall out of each other's lives and so on. So the A plot is the destruction of a romance, whereas the B plot that begins um, with the search for Owen Wilson's character is 
the reassembly of a romance and the reassembly of a family. I don't think it's a confusing movie at all. I think it's uh, it's, a... I mean, I think it's beautifully convoluted uh, in all just all the ways I love, but I don't think it's confusing. But I think probably people weren't willing to do the work um, also on some level to, you know, you either had to be just somebody who could let it wash over you. Or if you were looking to, to understand it in a certain way, then I think you probably turned off. Paul Thomas Anderson is unique in that, like, he's not only is he a technical, like, virtuoso, as a director, but he's a romantic and humanist. You know, like Hitchcock knew how to manipulate an audience. Like Paul Thomas Anderson knows how to use like all the elements of cinema to to make you feel this kind of sadness and longing, emotionally meticulous. What I find so fascinating about the movie is, you know, the the Marlowe or the Sam Spade, you know, the Hammett or the Chandler, you know, that kind of tradition of the private detective thing. It's so based on words and information and exposition. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I can't think of a movie that depends on that, that detests exposition (laughs) more than Inherent Vice does. It absolutely hates information. And you can see in the... The, char- the actors, the characters, the movie itself, it tosses words away. It almost feels like you can feel almost a sense of disgust it has that it has to impart information to the audience through <laughs> words in a way because it's so rooted in poetry. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not saying it to its detriment. I think that actually makes it – that's part of what I think um, – I don't know, makes makes PTA's movies – He's my favorite filmmaker working today, and I think that's part of what makes his movies so special is the vision is that they're so rooted in, um, I don't know, poetry that kind of transcends words. I think you know. With PTA, I also have expectations, and going into it, I was like, "What is this going to be? Is this going to be his long goodbye?" And it's not that. You know what I mean? It's something else. I can understand your obsession with this now, whereas I wouldn't have been able to. I was saying before. I- this felt like a weird one to do a, you know, a minute by minute podcast initially in my mind when you first announced it. Now having watched it again and listened to a couple episodes, it's like, no, this is kind of the perfect freewheeling. There's there's no wrong answer movie. There's a really extraordinary warmth, I think, and nostalgia uh, about it. There's a term that's usually attached to Longfellow's poetry, I think, called acedia. I, I think it's acedia. It's, it's just this idea of sort of this grand romantic decay. And, and there's a sense in the film that it, it feels lurid. You know, there's something lush and sultry about it. And it, it, it feels like memories of the 70s in a, in a way, just because I think a lot of the movies from that era feel like that. But there's a, there's, there's a way that Anderson seems to impart in this film especially, a sense of real melancholy to the way that the film is shot. I I mean, I think sort of like the way that we can talk about this film in the context of what's happening now isn't necessarily like, oh, Inherent Vice predicted all of this. But I think just that like, when you are more engaged with the world around you, uh, I think that like the interpretations you can pull from any given well-made piece of art just become much more uh, complex and sometimes like scary in ways that aren't fun to deal with but i think that that's also like very necessary bigfoot secretly wants to be a hippie and doc secretly wants to be a cop doc is doc is the closest you can be to being a cop without having the responsibilities of a cop and also the the ability to commit wanton 
unnecessary violence, which, which, you know, Bigfoot pretty much acknowledges. Like he wants to be a guy, he wants to be the kind of cop that people talk about, you know, like when they talk, when people sentimentalize police, mm-hmm. it, which is the guy who helps people who are in trouble and helps solve problems and finds people who are missing and stands up to powerful people on behalf of people who don't have any power. That's not really what the police do in this country. And Bigfoot represents what they actually do. That's another just, there's so many, not to diverge even further, but there's so many just little lines like that, that he delivers so convincingly and so, but also so like unintentionally hilariously, like the conviction when he says Moto Penikeko. That's exactly. And he's so mean too. He's so like rude to the guy, like, and the guy is like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like he comes in there and he does this all the fucking time. He doesn't want it to be too stuffy. He wants to undercut the seriousness. He wants it to be playful. So it's not just with this specific movie he decided, I I need to have, you know, the Zucker, Abrams, you know, airplane energy in the margins. It's, I think that's something you can find running through his work. I was trying so hard to follow the plot that I I don't think I even really noticed the emotionality um, until I let go of the plot and then I accessed the emotionality and then a few watches later, I could circle back around to the plot and connect it all. The film is, I mean, the film is basically a journey through a bunch of different subcultures, right? Yeah. All these little communities, each of which is kind of this, its own subculture, its own ecosystem. And every time he goes into one of those places, it feels like he's going into something that's never going to change. I've been interested in, and this is just something that just interests me in general, um, in studying how desire curdles and how it yeah. changes and how we lose it and how we hunger to kind of replay the same mix of lust and romance sometimes that you can't really capture. It's like that first high, man, I'm still trying to capture it, but it's not yeah. happening. I mean, that becomes your model though, that you that you know to follow. Exactly, and I think that's what really captures me about this movie is its emotional bramble and how complicated it is in that way. That's what makes us dock when we watch it. Like that's one of the great tricks of it because he, so therefore we think she's she's sort of the center of this. Uh, and, and then when he realizes that she's not, or is not the thing he's going to, you know, the scene we talk about is not the thing he's going to be able to do. That's, I mean, that's great because it's sort of, we're at that moment too. Well, then what are we going to do? <laughs> By the way, is there, is there a more 2020 question in this film than is there a swastika on that man's face with the answer being, perhaps you should pay no attention to that man? <laughs> and so prescient. I actually see it as a as a really uh, uh, hazy, technicolor, stoner-infused uh, uh, Dante's Inferno that he's going deeper wow. and deeper into these circles until until here. Because you know, you know, it, it's it, he's you know going down to save uh, you know his love from this hell that she's willingly put herself in, just like people who sin, you know, people who sin willingly send themselves into hell deeper and deeper. And so Doc is sort of playing that Dante role where he's got to keep going deeper and deeper and every level is more bizarre and darker until we reach Adrian Prussia. What, what's amazing about that scene, and I'm, I know you've done a whole episode dedicated to it, but like 
we can she keep just, going back. We can go that, back. That, that she just shows up. That he has he has created this mythos that he is like you're saying a, a rescuer, somebody yeah. who is searching and hunting. You don't not for a person, but for this idea that he has lost. And then she just walks in the door because that's what people do. They can just yeah. walk through the door. They don't need you. They don't need you to find or seek or hunt. I wonder, you know, because the you know the sex scene that that happens not quick, not soon before this, or pretty soon before this, is perhaps a breaking point then for Doc to, um, because he realizes what you everything you just laid out that he was pushing Shasta toward you know towards this damsel distress mode, and that that's kind of his you know she reckons that uh, there's a reckoning there in that scene yeah. uh, from her, and so. Perhaps it does give him the motivation then in this scene to kind of um, do everything he does because it's the first time we see him actually act like somewhat of a detective. It starts with Shasta asking him to investigate her sex life. And yeah. so the whole movie is him basically being exposed to all these facets of her that he may not be able to deal with. What I found with when I was looking around about all this is that I found a lot of people were sort of saying after the second or third time you've watched it the fourth time all the jokes and all the subtleties start to flood in because you're stopped being so suspicious or, or trying to keep <laughs> up with something that may not 100% be there. There is no such thing as a grown-up. There is no such thing as a grown-up. We are all, every single person that goes into confession and I would say a lot of people come to therapy, that's what you spot. You're like yes these are people that have grown-up suits on but we're all these little kids. So the, the idea of little kid blues is even just specific to little kids. Like I know the grown up version of what the little kid blues feels like. I remember feeling it as a kid, but I certainly know the adult version. Um, and it's a very specific feeling that I don't even think there's a great word for, but we all know what it is. Well, and even more so in the dialogue exchange, because you have like Joaquin like asking like, so justice was done. And then, you know, you have our attorney, Dr. Gonzo, just fluffing his quote, the most sarcastic prick imaginable. <laughs> Yes, justice was done. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Doc is is an avatar of that idea of these characters who are constantly trying to assert their want for the world, their vision for the world, their nostalgia for the world upon a world that is crumbling like wet sand in front of them, which, again, really reasserts what a hauntingly sad film Inherent Vice can be and not just the the Zucker brothers goofballery of the trailer and of some and, and some genuine moments in the film. Just a truly sad film about how the world will never comport to your need for, for what you need it to be. That it is a it is truly a world ruled by inherent vice. And when you contextualize it by that, you begin to see that all of PTA's films, the driving force, the kind of the motor in all of them is the idea of an of a character versus the idea of inherent vice itself and that that's the nuclear core kind of of a lot of his work it's not just bad dads in the valley no it's not just bad dads in the valley but bad dads in the valley works for that because there's that kernel of uh, of guilt or regret for transgression that's kind of you know eating away at them from the inside i mean there's that line in magnolia that certainly not underquoted in either the movie or in studies of Anderson, but you know, we may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. And just like that, here we are at the end. One year, 45 episodes, a whole lot of talking. At the end of Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, Doc finds himself alone in his car. No Shasta Fe to be found. 
driving along PCH and lost in a fog of the kind of density that only comes with lungs full of THC and a heart full of sorrow. Doc's been here before, and he's wondering if there's any more to be found on what Clancy Sherlock once called the Boulevards of Regret. In that ending, Pynchon wrote, maybe then it would stay this way for days. Maybe he'd have to just keep driving down past Long Beach, down through Orange County, and San Diego, and across the border where nobody could tell any more in the fog who was Mexican, who was Anglo, who was anybody. Then again, he might run out of gas before that happened, and to have to leave the caravan, and pull over on the shoulder, and wait for whatever would happen, for a forgotten joint to materialize in his pocket, for the CHP to come by and choose not to hassle him, for a restless blonde and a stingray to stop and offer him a ride, for the fog to burn off, and for something else this time, somehow, to be there instead. Whew! Don't say that guy can't write a great bummer of an ending. But as for us, what will we see tonight on the show as the fog clears one last time? We've been here before, you and I. We've been here before. Me on this side of the mic and you on that side of your speakers or your headphones. Just like my guest and I have been here before. Me on this side of the screen and the world and he on that side of his. It's kind of like how Doc and Shasta have been here before. Alone together, as if they're the only two people left in the universe. Just like when we first met them all that time ago, when she came along the alley and up the back steps like she always used to, bringing with her the sinistral whirlpool of a mystery alloyed with love and regret for a wayward P.I. to lose himself in. A case that began, like all others, with those five little words, I need your help, Doc. And it's just like when we saw them in Doc's journey through the past, running in the rain on that day when the Ouija board sure did its work. And they didn't score any dope that day, but it didn't matter, because they and no one else were there, the whole world fallen away. Just like when we saw them when Shasta returned, with more truth than Doc ever wanted to hear, but maybe needed more than anything to finally realize. And however they may have ended up on the couch that night, it doesn't mean that they're back together. Just the two of them. Just like Shasta says tonight in our final scene. Just us. Together. Almost like being underwater. We've been here before, you and I. Doc and Shasta. But it feels a little different tonight, a little sadder, and maybe a little freer. And maybe that's been the point of all this, all along. Just like how a man named Thomas Pinchon once wrote in a little detective novel of his a few years back, what goes around may come around, but it never ends up exactly the same place. You ever notice? Like a record on a turntable... All it takes is one groove's difference, and the universe can be on into a whole nother song. And listening to that whole nother song, or is it really the same song, is someone who returns to us now, just as Shasta came to dock in the film's beginning, middle, and end. So, too, did our guest appear in Increment Vices, beginning, and its middle, 
and now at its end, the man behind such podcasts as One Heat Minute, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, Miami Nice, All the President's Minutes. God, this guy loves a pun, doesn't he? And the producer and editor of this show, Increment Vice, the show that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time. Everyone, please welcome back to say hello and goodbye to Mr. Blake Howard. Oh, you're very good at that. I'm going to miss <laughs> listening to that. I'm going to miss know. listening to your Florida intros. They, they, I mean, I think we go tit for tat internationally on One Hit Minute Productions of who can do the most florid and uh, uplifting intros for our guests. And you are just, you're special, bud. You are a well, special, you are a special uh, one. Listen, thank you. Well, you know what? I am I'm pretty adroit. I'm I'm pretty gifted in that if, if I do something 45 times in a row, <laughs> I I get moderately average at it. And so I appreciate you. I appreciate you noting that and I appreciate you pointing that out in case anyone at home might have missed it. But really quick, now that I've I've buttered you up mm. and you've thrown a little bit back at me here. We need to take a moment. We're going to do something special. This is our last, this is our last hurrah. This, well, it's our last hurrah on increment vice. This is our, this is, this is our last hurrah here. And before we go any further, I wanted to introduce someone to everyone. Listening. Someone who, without whom this show would not be this show. Correct. The only reason we even seem semi-professional and like a couple <laughs> of grownups <laughs> And that would be our sort of liege, our narrator, the the person and the persona and the voice that gives this show polish and makes it actually sound pretty damn sharp. Uh, I would like to introduce to everyone Miss Kat Corbett, a DJ extraordinaire. She was almost going to start talking, but per usual, I, I, I just continued. Uh, who <laughs> She's used to it. Uh, who DJs for Sirius and K-Rock, amazing writer, and more than anything else, we're going to call her the capital V, The Voice. The Voice of of Increment Vice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, everybody say hi to Kat. Now can I talk? Yeah, you're allowed to talk. talk. (laughs) Travis is done. You're allowed to talk. This is so fun. And I really wish like anytime I walk into a room, you could just introduce me like that. If that could roll out beforehand, yeah. that would be amazing. I, I missed my calling as a hype man, I think. Like long, <laughs> I think you did long, too. Long decades. Because I I, I I think I could roll in like really like, I think I make people feel good. I should like, I should like hawk myself at corporate. But it's like, you're like the hype man at the club in Inside Lewin Davis. Like you need that. Like, it's like a poet, <laughs> it's a poetry jam. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit pre Dylan goes electric. That's like, it's a, it's a mood. It's a vibe. And that's what cat sets for this show. And that's what you set. Like cat sets the vibe. You maintain that vibe. We introduce the guests. Everyone feels yeah. happy and everyone's ready and just lulled into this. Like, all right, let's, let's talk some vice. Well, if I can say anything first that, you know, I'm reading the words that Travis writes and I know you spend time toiling away and going crazy every single week to get it right. And, you know, we started at the beginning with like these pages and pages, which I was happy, happy to narrate. Um, 
And you just, you know, we started getting to the nugget of, of things and it really evolved into something amazing. So it, it's been a privilege to be the sort of liege, if you will, and, oh. and read these words. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. And I must say, I and do then like, you were a pain in the ass with the recording, but I mean, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, I like things that sound a certain way. Um, no, no uh, <laughs> I, 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 I like how Kat frames my increasing laziness as me getting to the nugget of something where she's like, originally the intros were so long and then they got shorter and shorter when it was really just me getting more and more tired of writing them going, ah, two sentences is good enough. No, I think, I think, episode. I think production wise, it is that thing of you learn sometimes less is more and yes, people want to get to your guest and what you're discussing uh, of each episode. And I think we finally found the perfect balance of length of narration well, into the show. Yes, that's true. Maybe no, I was going to say uh, in terms of that less is more. I think I'm still not. I'm still figuring that one out for the actual hosting part. Oh with God, my, as we are. as we heard with that 45 minute <laughs> um, Hey, you know, hey, 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 hey. The people pay for this. Yeah, this is what they're paying. This is 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 this. The, the and thanks to the people for doing that. Um, uh, but yeah, I just I just wanted people to meet you and actually hear you for real and go, yeah, her her voice really is just that cool. Like the the, the, the this is cat. Like she just has the voice. She's and got the voice. I also wanted to say that in all seriousness, uh cat really, really has saved our asses on multiple occasions and given us so much wisdom and and like uh, training on and technical. found and foundational technical support oh because oh, our because our gracious host is a phenomenal writer is an incredibly focused interviewer and is one of the most insightful film minds in the world but this guy cannot plug a fucking usb in <laughs> yeah he is yeah. out of control like tech he's scared he can play a record he can put a blu-ray on you know plug in a television you ask him to plug in a microphone he's not very equipped cat has been so amazing to help like getting trav technically proficient and then as a producer we came up with this show this is a little bit of behind the scenes we came up with the show it was it was beyond our wildest dreams that we would ever have recording spaces that would you know be professional you know you're often sort of it, it takes time to get the right mics and the right setups in your home studio. My home studio is taking me over a year to build to get, get where it is. And Kat has been so amazing and supportive and helped, uh, especially in the beginning of the show, orchestrate some great interviews that were face-to-face -face in like professional spaces, but sound amazing. So uh, it's it, like the, the show was defined by this mood and this sound and, and Kat's been a huge part of that. So thank you so much from, from me too, Kat. You, I mean, of course. It's, a it's a pleasure to pull it all together. I feel, you know, I feel comfortable in a studio. I've been in one most of my life. So, um, you know, that stuff is easy for me. And it really uh, lent a legitimacy. I know everyone has a podcast and, you know, doing something like this, you know, at first people might have been like, what? You know, and then <laughs> I think they <laughs> we, we got them into our, our you know, real studios. And, and it really just um, hit home as to how serious uh, you know, we all were doing this. So yes. um, it was really fun. And, you know, Travis, it was, it was interesting to teach someone new because I hadn't done that in so long about, you know, being behind a board. Um, and as far as, you know, mics go and levels go, because it's a, it's a real soundboard. It's crazy. You know, it's not just a podcast mic. And Travis stepped up and he 
just like took it all in and he got comfortable. I, I know it's hard to do that, be in a headspace and be in a strange room. And he really did it. Weirdly, I just remember crying and asking you to tell me where to put my hands at all I time. was trying to make you sound uh, heroic, but yeah, you um, did kind of cry. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, you, for everyone listening, Kat is a, a humongous reason why the show has ever sounded good. <laughs> it sounded clear yeah. is, is, is because of Kat and because of her expertise and, and what she was able to provide and what she was able to show us, and teach us. And again, I, I, as Blake says, I don't know how to plug in a fucking USB cable. Um, <laughs> and so just in a monumental help. But I also I also had to throw out there that uh, probably one of our most popular episodes, if not most popular, is the episode in which director Ryan Johnson came on. And oh, that was maybe, yeah. I have to say, as a guest, he was a joy. He was one of the, shockingly, the easiest people to book, like no problem whatsoever. He literally just ambled to the studio one day uh, with, with his partner, who was also a guest on the show, and just, just said, hey, can I come on? It was that easy. Problems developed, however, when we decided to record his episode the day, the Saturday before... LA went into total quarantine back in March. Oh. And that night, the night feels before, like a lifetime super, ago. Super late at night on a right. Friday night, we found out we lost our studio space because everything got shut down. Everything got shut down. I'm panicking. I have no idea how, what I'm going to tell Ryan because I wanted something, you know, we could obviously we could we could Skype it out or whatever, but I really you're getting Ryan Johnson. You want you want it to sound nice, and you want to have like an experience. And I wanted to touch his hair, and, <laughs> and, and, his, oh and his and like the the, the chunky cable of his sweater that you knew he was going to wear because this is the man behind Knives Out. And so, a mm -hmm. uh, cat, at like literally with no time to prep, whips out her cell cell phone, and just starts making things happen. And next thing you know. Saturday morning to speak to Ryan Johnson about the scene in which Doc and Shasta run with Neil Young playing on the soundtrack. Cat booked us in the studio in which Neil Young recorded his very first solo record. Like that's 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 where we did that on a on a very rainy and cold and weird Saturday morning. We recorded the Neil Young episode in Neil Young studio, and that is entirely entirely due to cat so let me tell you my side because when i found <laughs> because when i found out that the studios we normally used were in lockdown i mean i was just like holy shit like i did not want to make that <laughs> phone call to you <laughs> i was like the worst possible thing because obviously ryan johnson is a big and important guest and um so I, I know when I, I had to tell you just while I was working in the background and I could hear in your voice this utter just despair and panic, uh, you know, all together. And here and, I'm thinking um, like, I think I took it pretty well. I was being really cool, really calm. You, you were, but I, <laughs> it, was a, it was a hard call to make to you. Yeah. And, um, and, and I like to thank my friend Wally at Wax Studios, who is a fantastic yes, thank you know, you, songwriter and producer. Um, and... He, and, and frankly, honestly, I wasn't even thinking Neil Young at the time. Like, I'm just great friends with Wally. And I was like, dude, I need a studio. Can you like, you know, do you, are you open on Saturday? Can, can I get in there? And he's like, yeah, no problem. And then 
you know, then we could go down that rabbit hole, but it didn't even occur to me at the time. And so now, I mean, so when that happened and we realized the Neil Young connection and that Ryan was such a huge music fan and, and looked at all of the albums that had been produced in that studio space, like what it did to him, he got so excited and so relaxed. And it was so, like he was just even more fun than I think we should have had, you know? Yeah, and I think he was definitely relieved that we were real people in a studio and that we weren't gonna like hack him to pieces in a garage somewhere. <laughs> well, there's that, we, we yeah. told, you wanna come talk there's about that. Inherent Vice? You wanna, you wanna come over, you wanna do that? And so I think right. he, was, he was quite relieved to still be in a professional space where he would, he would actually be able to be seen again. Um, but yeah, that, that's that, just... that episode has some of the, the entire series' best ball busting. It's one of the funnest. Yeah, we really kind of started. You guys were just bu busting each other's balls, having a great time. You know, that's that's where the well, show really you know, shines. I, I, I had to come heavy. I was like, well, you might have directed a Star Wars, but I got a podcast <laughs> about Inherent Vice. I mean, I'm not sweating either. I'm try sitting, <laughs> try sitting like four feet away and like, oh god, that was not so trying to hold it together, trying to hold oh it together. I definitely I'm... almost blew my brains out because I was like holding <laughs> it all in. Yeah. But yeah, great. that was that was the the last fun thing I did pre-pandemic is we spent a Saturday hanging out at the studio where Neil Young, The Velvet Underground, and Jimi oh. Hendrix all recorded records. We went into the recording rooms, we looked at the guitars, and just, just that was just, it was a, it was just like one of those miraculous kind of inherent vicey type moments where things got heavy, we didn't know what we were going to do, and all of a sudden, like it was meant to be, Karma just smiled on us and said, we'll go to Neil Young's studio. That's where we'll go. That's where we'll go for this scene. But my point being, that kind of thing would not have happened had Cat not so ably stepped up to the plate and saved our asses uh, once that's again. What you, that's what once you again. do, guys. You know that the show must once go again. on. We, the we'll show get it done. must go on. Yes. So yes. I, I, I will say, from the bottom of my heart, Cat, I so appreciate everything you've done for this show. All of the last minute copy that you have read as i send it to you in a flurry the day of a show i so so appreciate your patience and everything you've done and again everybody listening anytime you thought well this show sounds pretty good uh anytime you you've wondered like how how did they do that nine times out of ten it's because uh i called cat in a panic and she's like yeah dude give me like five minutes and all right. Well, let's all we let's all also give Blake the uh, production uh, credit that he's oh, due. Oh, Kat, did you not hear that forty-five minute intro? I did. I heard it, but you know, I I, and I've got I an just... outro plan too. He's not done. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not done with. It. I'm not done. With and it. actually, if people are listening, there's already been a twenty-minute introduction of the best bits of the show. <laughs> so they're, oh they're getting into this. They're this getting into this. We're about a, long at we're, this we're about thirty-five minutes in so far. You know, like people have heard some of that, so I don't need any more. Thanks. I didn't. Yeah. All right. Well, this look. I was just congratulatory podcast episode. I know. It, it was just <laughs> in closing. I would just like to say it was an honor to be a part of this. It's so nice to do something, you know, so original and so out there, and to kind of slip into the voice of a sorely, you know, the Joanna Newsom type of vibe <clears throat> was really fun. And so, uh, yeah, I was thrilled to do it. So, I'm really sad now. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, we're we're no, don't, 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 no, no. We're not going to go down. I was going to say, don't, 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 nope. don't. We're all going to be a, nope. a rollicking hot nope. mess. Nope. At every nope. point nope. of this show today. All right, Kat. I again, I just have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
It's wonderful to see your face. I miss it. Same here. So, and, so great um, to see your face. Yeah. Thank you for oh coming goodness. on. Goodness. And thank you for everything, for absolutely everything you've done. It will not be forgotten. Thank, Thank you, you guys. You know, I mean, normally I get asked to do stuff and then I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you, Anchorman Vice team. I'm in. Oh, so um, have you, a great rest of your last episode. Mwah. It's Mwah. been amazing. Mwah. 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 You're the best. See ya. Bye, Kat. See you. Bye. Oh, boy. And now it's just the two of us, Blake. It's you and uh -oh. Here we are, right back. Just you and me now, sport. Just right. you and me. Wrong podcast, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, here we are, just like Doc and Shasta, right back where we started. It's been a year, the mm. same length of time between when Shasta left off for her dreams and then returned to his doorstep with those five little words. A year. And what a banner year for the golden fang it's been. You know, <laughs> the golden what, fang uh, this has been crushing it. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. has been the Fangs year. Really has, you know, we were supposed to end this series, you and I, sitting on the shore of Manhattan Beach, recording with a few drinks and joints and the sound of the waves in the background. That was the initial idea. So, hey, we'll record the original the plan on the beach, you and me, because uh, you were going to come out to LA and hang. And, I had uh, planned. I had planned a bumper U.S. trip. Uh, we it did. was going to be two two weeks in LA with you and I plotting at secret projects, which we won't mention. Um, and and, uh, and then a couple of weeks on the way. East Coast. And uh, no, uh, definitely not. But in a way, again, that's very vice appropriate in that we had these plans. We had these things we wanted. We had the way we wanted life to go. And the Golden Fang showed up. And again, to once again, quote the man, <laughs> PTA, they came and they just fucked it up for the good guys. And that's what the fangs did. And <laughs> here we are. I what, What's left to say? 45, 45 episodes deep. We've, we've done this for a year. Normally, normally, I start by going back, as you know, as you've been the, the unwilling witness to every single episode of this show. Very willing. Very um, willing witness. Normally, I go back to a guest's first time with Inherent Vice, but we've already mm -hmm. gone back to your first time with this movie. We've gone mm -hmm. back to your first, oh, we did that on your first time with this podcast. So instead, we're going to get an update. We're going to get an update from you. Mm -hmm. Now that we're here at the film's epilogue and we're cruising down PCH in that cotton candy fog, as you begin to try to let the film go, I don't know if I ever really will, but as mm -hmm. you now start to let the film go, how has it changed for you from that first viewing six years ago up to right now in this minute? How's it changed for you? Oh, it's, it's completely, it's, it's so enriched by literally every conversation and it doesn't happen to me where I go and watch the whole film again, but I, you know, even as, even as recent as the episode with you and Adam, there was a synchronicity in the scene and then a synchronicity in your last dialogue together where you guys were both kind of doing these beautiful, like interconnected points. And then I would go back and I, I literally watched that scene where doc and Bigfoot confront one another for the last time. I watched it like 25 times. Um, I think what, like, cause I just kept Who watching. I, I, I watched it so many times again because I just was, I was marveling at the depth 
of these things. And, and, and even CJ is one of our last guests on the show too. He, he mentioned like, you know, the fourth time being the magic time where like there's yeah. a magic sweet spot where you, the movie's not trying to trick you anymore. So you can kind of relax into its vibe. And I would just say that it is just this effortlessly rich thing, you know? So what I kept seeing in this is a confidence and a competence from a filmmaker and a mastery of, of basically effortlessness that I couldn't have fathomed. Like the first time I'm like, this is my kind of movie. You know, this is my kind of scene. Like I'm, I, I'm in, I, I loved it. It's definitely something that always enraptured me enough to like when it was on in any way, shape or form, I would watch the whole thing. Um, but you know, my most recent whole viewing, like I was away with my, my family. I, I was watching it with my wife and I, you know, I was trying to do other things. I put this on much in the same way as I do all of my favorite films. Cause I'm like, I love this. I want it to be the white noise of all the things I was doing. And what, what, what I was completely wrong at is that that's a trap door. You put it on and you stop doing the chores. You stop doing the things, yep. the tinkering around the yeah. space you need to do. Same. And you just sit down and start watching the movie again. Um, and so, yeah, I, that's how it's different. And I think for everyone who's been listening along to the show, and we've got so many incredible supportive fans and I've received so much incredible, you know, me, I know it must be overwhelming for you, but almost every other podcast that I, you know, do, and I'm on a lot, um, a lot of, everyone mentions increment vice, everyone mentions it. And um, they, uh, they, they, it holds a special place for them. And we've had such phenomenal, I mean, both of our current shows at the moment, a president's man and increment vice. I just look at the rosters and I'm completely staggered every time. Um, and yeah, that, that's how it's changed for me, Trav. It's, it's grown in my conceptions. It's grown as a piece of work. And I think that it's really helped me sort of understand about, there are some works that are, I guess what you would call like <clears throat> classical masterworks where you, they're, they're pretty flashy, you know, like the, the flashiest of all, like Citizen Kane, like it's flashy as all hell, right? Like formalist as a formalist work, as a, as a statement, as performance, as you know, every, every conceivable metric you would say that movie, you know, excels, but it's, 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 you know, it, it kind of insists that it is doing those things. And this is a much more like it's, it's a work that almost like glacially consumes you. And I found that so much. And now when I watch it, I feel like I immediately I'm tipping myself into its portal. It has me. That's it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And even the scene that we're talking about today, I watched it again with like such a tone of melancholy this oh, time, yeah. knowing that this is going to be our time, our last time talking about it and the last time for the show. Cause it's been, you know, you record during the week in the States and then on a Friday night, I literally, yeah, I bought myself a cognac. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a Cuban cigar and I sit down and I edit the show and I get inspired by it. And I kind of organically like think of sound drops and cues based on what you and the guests are talking about or inspirations from my own life and my own music library that I think, Oh, this would be a great way. And I kind of just like design this thing. And yeah, I watched this final scene and I was just absolutely devastated. And so, yeah, it's, it's a incredible film. And I think that for every hour that I've edited and listened to it, it's been wonderful. And I'm so glad it's one of those things. I'm so glad that I insisted that you do it and insisted that you do it when you did it, because it is a phenomenal document of this film, a phenomenal document of this time. And um, yeah, I just, it's, it's been a joy. 
Thank you, buddy. And uh, a couple things, really quickly, little bits of housekeeping. That very, very wonderful response. The first would be, yes, Citizen Kane. I've read on film Twitter that that's supposed to be a good movie. I will check it out. <laughs> check um, it out. I will, yeah. Uh, also, too, I, you know, you were talking about, you know, editing and dropping in audio bits and things like that. Just in case, just, just also in case people did not know, Blake does all of that. Any any audio cutting, any any drops you hear, sound effects. Whenever I say Vincent and Delicato, that horn you that horn you just heard, that's Blake <laughs> popping that in because he loves when I mention Vincent and Delicato, a character <laughs> who never shows up in the film, but I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about. <laughs> but just just lest anyone think that I actually do any real work for this show, as you <laughs> tonight, it's literally all Blake and all Cat. And then no. I just show up and jib jab for like two hours to some some Com guest who no. agreed to come on and talk about this movie. Completely wrong. What Travis is completely lying about is that he's one of the most fastidiously and crazily prepared podcast hosts you've ever seen in your life. That's why he sounds so great on One Heat Minute. That's why we developed a great friendship. That's why I entrusted him with what was the almost pinnacle minute of the entire show. You know, he was the lead in batter to Michael Mann only a few episodes later on One Heat Minute. So hence why I knew that he would be phenomenal for this show. Travis prepares with an inch of its life and basically, you know, where he says that he has writer's block for other projects has essentially written an entire essay on every problem. I would love to see his raw notepads of like every single scene that he's probably written an essay on to make sure that he's, he's kind of done that as well as preparing really rigorously for each guest. Sometimes people who've written entire books that he's read in preparation for the show before it and slept not very much to do so. So I just get, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Marvin. Chores. And I just come in here and I just enjoy my time. Um, and uh, you know, if I could, if I could open the studio door and have, and actually have a cigar. And in fact, a few times through the journey, I have had a cigar after editing an episode as opposed to during, but yeah, I definitely sit here with a cheeky, uh, you know, spiced, uh, rum beverage often. And, um, and you know, and, uh, and I edit the episodes and, and Travis is so prepared that it's just easy for me to kind of do, do these great cuts and, and have, and have a really good time bringing the whole mood together and Kat's voice is like, she's our, you know, she's the aperitif that everyone sort of gets in the mood for. And then we just, you know, here's the main meal that, that comes out. I love that. We're just going to spend this whole episode talking about how great we all are. Yes. It's, it's, it's time. It's time. I'm in. You know, it's, it's time. time. <laughs> but, okay. You know what? We're actually, we are going to, we're, we're actually going to talk about in hair vice a little bit. Uh, Let's do that. You know, that's where you land with the movie now. And I, and I was really thinking about it. You know, I, I was, I sat down to watch the final scene last night and instead I just, I hit play and I watched the thing from top to bottom. I just decided, you know, last time around, I'll just watch the movie as a whole, even mm -hmm. though I do that quite often. Anyway, um, I decided I'd do it one more time just to lead into our scene. And, you know, I began, I began this show with a kind of twin thesis uh, that a, not only is it not the inexplicable mess that so many people have disregarded it as it's yeah. actually a goddamn masterpiece yes and b and b now brace yourself babies because i know you've heard this so many times before but <laughs> once more into the reach dear friends we're going to do this together my argument that for pinchung inherent vice the book was a look back over his shoulder from the time of its publication in 2009 back those halcyon, sun-hammered days of SoCal in 1970, a time and a place in which our reclusive author lived, 
and was roughly the same age as Doc, he did so in order to examine the broken promise of a hopeful generation. This, this schismal moment when everything in the American fate seemed to sour and the sweet, heady period that apexed with the summer of love slowly slopped into this bloody and despondent winter of never-ending discontent. And Pinchon achieved this look back through Doc's interactions and interrogations with all the similarly lost souls of the time, all while using Doc's painful heartbreak and longing for his beloved ex-old as this subtextual metaphor for Pinchon's own soul-stung search for meaning. But, but the miracle of the movie, the miracle of the movie to me, and this was my, my big thesis, is that for Anderson, for Paul Thomas Anderson, the crucial resonance of Inherent Vice, it's not the failed hopes of the free love years, but rather Pinchon's background metaphor of lost love. And the director, PTA's extraordinarily grandiose romanticism, it inverts the thematic structure of the story, of the novel, so that subtext is made text. And Doc's odyssey becomes that of a man sifting through the clues at the murder scene of a wayward generation to relocate the love of a woman he has lost. The book might be a lament for the 1960s, but as we have said so many times before, and I'm going to say one more time tonight, the movie, it's about love, baby. Yes. It's about love. That's what this movie is. And it uses the, the subtext of a brokenhearted man crumbling beneath the weight of a, of a lost woman or, and his relationship with her. That becomes that doesn't that's not subtext in this movie. It, it inverts it. Now that 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 everyone's heard that. Everyone's heard me say that. That sorry, I just had to do it one more time. That is why I wanted to do the show. I wanted to make that argument for people who had not given the film a chance, and just for people who actually agree and like the movie and wanted to hear that there was one other psycho out there that loved the movie as much as they do. I wanted to give them a pal to listen to. So that's why I did it. And same as the essay, I wrote, essay that I wrote for Brightwall Dark Room at the time. It's to prove and show and make the case that this film is something special. And it is. But now a year later, what I found is that it's so much more than that. That mm. argument now, I, I go back and I, I think about that argument, that, that, that big uh, monolithic monologue that I just gave just now, and it seems so naive, and it seems kind of black and white, and not as interesting to me anymore, because the movie is so much more than that, and that's that's what I've come to learn. It's not just about loving someone so goddamn much that it cracks your heart, although it's part of it. It's about time, and how time goes bad, and how it can let the inherent vice curdle. The inherent vice of life curdle all that time touches, whether it's a love of a person or a life or a country. It's about good and evil and how at best there can only be a draw between the two. And how it's about how those golden-hued forces of evil, when given enough power, can be like a plague loosed upon the world, a plague of pain and sickness and bad cops and corrupt presidents making that world a place where the only certainty is that you can never ensure against it a world of inherent vice and it's a movie about how despite all of that despite knowing to a certainty that you will lose that as of all people bigfoot bjornson himself says sometimes it's just about doing the right thing that's what inherent vice is about to me now 
no matter what, no matter the cost, that while this weary world may prevent our happiness, it may prevent our dreams from coming true, it doesn't prevent you from doing one good thing as long as you're willing to try. And my God, that's it, it's so much more than those things too. But it that's that's what the movie is to me. And that's, for me, that's been the journey. It's like me starting with my argument. Oh, it's about love. It's about, a, it's about a boy and a girl and how they need to get back together. And slowly but surely, it became as, as, as cheesy as this sounds, <laughs> it became a movie about everything. And I think yeah. it, despite their length, despite the length of the other films in his oeuvre, I think it is PTA's only film that is genuinely about everything. This is a movie yes. about what it is to be alive. And that, I didn't know it at the time, that is why I love Inherent Vice. Yeah, I think two two things. I'm going to quote a poet by the name of Shane Black. Uh, Nobody likes you. Everyone hates you. You're going to lose. Smile, you fuck. Is I very it every much, morning. Say is, it every is, morning in the mirror. <laughs> is a mantra that this movie lives by. But also it's like sometimes the you know, you called it like a schism, like that, that schism of time and the time that we're in just talks about, you know, the, it's, it's the same thing that Robert town talked about with Chinatown. You know, it's the Chinatown state of mind. It's that the world is corrupt and you only have to sort of, it's not, there's no excavation uh, required to see this subterranean world that these bad things are happening. And that's kind of the laughable thing, even five years ago when this movie came out of like, isn't this a funny paranoid little thing where all of these golden fang activities are happening so blatantly right out there in the open. And I think that that's the beauty of both Chinatown and, and, and movies like Inherent Vice. It's like the, the inherent corruption of the world and these, and these forces and the choice for you to face into them by just doing one good thing at a time um, has never been more powerful and potent and resonant than right now. And so I think that, you know, we stumbled into this schism that is, it, it is like, a, you know, the experience of people saying, Oh, I'm a sister city. We're, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about relationships through time and fraternity through periods in time. And, and I think that, you know, that, that eclipse of, 69 to 70 and the eclipse of 2019 to 2020 has been an unbelievable, um, uh, an unbelievably turbulent moment in history that you cannot even fathom that you'll understand completely as, we're, as it's unfolding. It's something that we all know that we're going to reflect on and talk about for probably decades to come. But I think that this movie is, it, it you know, it is truly, it wasn't ahead of its time. It was exactly on time. But like so many great pieces of art, um, people people missed how poignant and how you know how perfect and potent it was at at the moment that it was released. And I think it's like it's taken a little bit of time to earn its vintage. And now when you crack this great bottle open or you roll this particular brand of weed into a, a ginormous spliff to smoke on it and to toke it, it's 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 magnificent. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a drag that uh, democracy has to be brought to its knees for a lot of people to recognize, <laughs> oh, shit, this movie's on to something. But yeah, like you said, you know, you said it wasn't ahead of its time, it was just of its time. And I think, you know, that's been a thread that has been weaving its way through this podcast, certainly since uh, 
this summer, uh, which, and this feels like 10 years ago, but this summer when there was rioting across the country and certainly in my city of Los Angeles. And I remember, I can't, you know, I can't remember the the first guest who said this, so my apologies if I'm attributing it to the wrong person, um, but our good friend Anna, who came on for the episode in which Doc and company get pulled over by a shaky LAPD cop, you know, one of the things we talked about is it's not that Pinchon is so brilliant that he could predict what life would be like 50 years in the future from 1970 to 1920 and, and replicate that and that he could or that, that or not that he wrote this in 1970, but like even in 2009, that he could predict where we would be in 2020. It's that the, his genius is the recognition that not, it's just that nothing's changed. Yes. That, that, that essentially at its core, America is the same very ill mindset and country that it was in 1970. And he, he was able to recognize that and incorporate that into this novel. So the reason that this novel uh, and, and the reason that this film, the reason that they feel so resonant now is not because they were made relatively recently, the novel in 20, uh, 2009 and the, the film in 2014. It's that it just doesn't change. And that is mm-hmm. one of the that is one of the, the major elements that I don't think the, either the film or the book gets credit for is how life is like a record it keeps just spinning around to the same place again and all the most that you can hope for is that maybe it it skips into a different groove and things get a little better each time out but for the most part things keep coming back around to the same place again just like doc and shasta we keep seeing them in the same ways alone together just like you and i once again here we are (laughs) beginning middle and end of this podcast staring at each other talking about a movie and that that idea is just that's just again we're talking about no surprise we're talking about why inherent vice is good on an inherent vice podcast that is one of the (laughs) many marvels of this film that you know i think was so so unheralded and unrecognized when it came out and people were either like that's kind of funny but not as funny as it should be or holy shit this is a really depressing movie and that is the saddest sex scene i've ever seen in my life i don't (laughs) understand what this is and then there was the one percent of people like you and I that were like, my God, the veil has been pulled from my eyes and I'm seeing God. The thing that was so missed, though, is is that idea of how how neatly and accurately and sadly it captures what life can be at any time period. Mm. 1970, Mm. 2020, 2009, 2014, doesn't matter. It is so big and the ideas and the feelings that it encompass, and this is what I was trying to say earlier, are so life-spanning and culture-spanning that with the right kind of eyes and the right kind of ears, it's impossible to watch this movie and not go, well, Jesus, that's just life, isn't it? That's exactly yeah. what it is. And it's, it's, it's the quandary of the American experience, right? Like, I, I think that that's what I get to say as an outsider is, you know, um, funnily enough, I feel like who is nothing like PTA, but um, uh, nonetheless sort of infamous for his own little oeuvre of films, Sam Peckinpah, who I know you admire as well. Um, I, I recently, I, I recently, I recently watched uh, one of his films that was uh, recovered in 2005 has now re- been put on home entertainment for the first time called Major Dundee. And I watched his extended cut. And what's really interesting about Major Dundee, if you've never ever heard of it, it's a, a very interesting watch stars Charlton Heston 
as like a, a essentially like a, a soldier in in uh, the Yankee forces in the from the north um, at the tail end of the Civil War, who's a jailer and he's um, operating close to the southern borders of Mexico, and he's imprisoned a whole bunch of you know soldiers from the south. Uh, you know, you've got uh, Negro soldiers who fought with the um, the the um, uh, the the northern forces and sort of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Indian forces, American Indian forces, who are sort of like, uh, you know, sort of freelancing, if you like, is probably the best way to describe them working for him. And he ends up building this band of, you know, this misfit band to go and chase down uh, a, a Comanche tyrant who's essentially just sort of um, uh, pillaging a whole swathe of country down there. And they have to go into Mexico to find him and fight him. And what is interesting about the makeup is you have this incredible tension of ideas and uh, ideologies that are in those groups that are still so incredibly resonant. <laughs> and these are portraying soldiers of post-Civil War tension of like different ideologies, incredibly divided. You sort of European Americans, you've also got the native cultures there. You've also got the, the you know, the, the Spanish populated, you know, cultures. You've, you've got, um, you know, African Americans who are now like, tenuously free is probably the best way to probably talk about it. And what I was watching it, I was like the dynamics here, especially in soldier encampments, you see them in inherent rights. You see them in the thing, John Carpenter's the thing from 82. Like you see them sprinkled through these tensions and, and the straight faced, uh, I guess, candid, you know, differences between these people that they're constantly contending with. And so that's what I think is great about this movie that was absolutely dismissed on its initial release is, you know, when you've got, when you've got, we got his technically Jewish, but also wants to be a Nazi. Like I know that that has been joked about, but it's like, there are the same sort of quandaries that are happening right now in the American experience. There's the same sort of like strange things that are happening. And you're like, you couldn't write, you couldn't pinch and couldn't be clever enough to write how stupid this, the, our contemporary time is like, he's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm already being extreme, but it, that's what you see. Um, you see here. And when you talk about these echoes, you know, this scene here, I mean, I, I don't know, like just to anchor it back to the scene itself one of the most famous endings to almost any movie ever is another, there's a film from 1976. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, sorry, 75. It's a little film called, uh, 76, 75, um, called taxi driver. Um, and the final scene of the movies, uh, stars a guy, you might've heard of him. I've spoken about him a couple of times on one eight minute productions, Bobby De Niro. Um, and his uh, good mate at the time, Martin Scorsese, uh, uh, directing one of his first, one of his early movies, I think it's about his fourth. Um, and he's in the front of a cab and Sybil Shepherd gets into the back of the cab and he's had a sort of searches, uh, John Ford searches ending, you know, where he's done his one good thing. This twisted weirdo has done his one good thing by murdering a bunch of pimps um, and, and hangers on to rescue Jodie Foster's young child prostitute. And he's now recovered after shaving his head um, and doing his thing and potentially threatening that he's going to kill a politician um, and all those fun things that our friend Travis Bickle does. And at the end of that movie is one of the most dynamically edited, ambivalent and creepy and sticky endings of any movie ever made. Sticky in that it sticks with you 
long after viewing and decades, in fact, after your first viewing. And I was watching this scene again now and this kinship of these weird characters who do this perverse or not so perverse one good thing, depending on what you determine is their one good thing, being put up to assassinate uh, a political inf- a p- police informant and someone who's been doing the the dirty work of the LA uh, the LA uh, police department um, by another cop who wants to get him out of his hair or reuniting a family and kind of both because that's that quandary um, and I just was completely struck by you know uh, for a guy who clearly loves um, Martin Scorsese. Uh, in, and particularly says that, you know, Boogie Nights is a complete ripoff of you know, Scorsese's work. Um, it's for a movie that feels so Altman, it trails off and has this Scorsese-esque coda. And I watched it 20 freaking times. And then I went and watched the end of Taxi Driver in preparation for our discussion and then came back and watched it again. And um, there's such a deep ambivalence um, and and very candid uh you know, uh, hopelessness or if you like that ends this movie that um, I can definitely see why it rubbed people the wrong way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, this is, I was so thrilled that we, we, when you decided that you wanted me to be the final person to talk to because I thought, wow, there's maybe not a more interesting moment in this entire movie than this scene. Hopelessness. Okay, we have. We're not going to get into the minute just or the scene. I'm reverting to one heat minute here. We, we're not going to get into <laughs> the scene just yet. But hopelessness, Blake. No, 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 honey, no. Before we do that, really quick, I just want to say that uh, one of the gifts of this show is having guests on like Blake, who, when talking about inherent vice, will draw lines from Sam Peckinpah's director's cut of Major Dundee to John Carpenter's The Thing, back to Scorsese's Taxi Driver, weaving a lattice that he will then overlay upon Inherent Vice to, to mark out all these uh, little connections and constellations that are in the film. And I, and I just, I, I, I adore shit like that. I will say that I would, I would also put Travis Bickle's One Good Thing in quotes around one yeah, good thing yeah he, i think he only i think the inference is because he couldn't kill a presidential <laughs> candidate and so he decided to kill a pimp instead uh, the, the the inference was uh quotation marks uh uh the, but this is not a video podcast so people may sure, not have been sure. able to see that uh before we get into the scene proper because i have some things to say about people who call this ending hopeless and uh you got the <laughs> uh i just want to say my god one of my favorite things about this show and we're doing a lot of kind of a retrospective chit chat here so uh bear with me uh dear listeners uh one of the one just one of the things i'm proudest of this show and one of the things i've enjoyed the most about this show is our wonderful series of guests um and it's another thing that has really taught me about this film and also film in general and i feel like this is something that should be super obvious but I'm a person that I just walk around with blinders on most of the time, you know, thinking about all the dumb stuff that I think about and I'm not thinking about this, um, is that um, our guests have provided an unexpected and unintended bit of magic for me that I I, I did not see coming when I started the show and it never occurred to me that it would happen. And it's, it's that they would not only come with their own interpretations, but their interpretations would open up my own. 
and would challenge my own and change my own and strengthen my own. Just as Doc basically spends the film in this very Joan Didion-esque, we tell ourselves stories in order to live style conversations with the lost souls of 1970. So too have I sat here with guests some 50 years later and we've told ourselves stories and interpretations in order to live through this rotten and terrifying year, stories and interpretations about inherent vice. And sometimes we throw them far afield to things like Major Dundee or The Thing or The Taxi Driver. And I'm sitting here waiting excitedly to see how are they gonna connect this? How are they gonna make make this a, a cohesive thought that I'm gonna take with me the next time I watch this film that I adore? And how it's gonna change how I watch this film that I adore. You, me, all these guests to quote, uh, to quote Bodhi from Point Break, we've shared time. And <laughs> sharing that time has made me, and you can pull your eyes if you want anyone out there, but uh, has made sharing that time has has made me a better person and it's made me a better viewer and, and, and incredibly important to me. It's made Inherent Vice such a better film mm. to me because it's shown me how much it can contain because now it does inherent inherent vice. Now it doesn't just carry the meaning that I always argued that it contained. And it, it doesn't mean that it's just a container of all the new, just the new things uh, that I, I found in it on my own on this journey. Inherent vice now means all the things those guests brought to it from Kim Morgan to Jordan Harper to Alicia Malone to Ryan Johnson to Angelica Jade Bastien to you and everyone in between. All those interpretations that we've heard at the beginning of this episode, they're here now in two in the film. And that's the magic of this film to me is that it was made in such a way that it could mean and contain anything. It could mean anything, but you'll only find those meanings if you are willing to open up and receive them from others. And that is, that's just such an incredible thing that I learned is maybe that's super obvious and everyone's going, well, yeah, that's what happens when you talk about a movie. But to me, like that is the last thing I expected to happen when talking about this film. I thought I was just going to continually make my piece uh, or make my argument and, and just like hammer it at people until they submitted. I didn't, I don't know why I thought that would be an entertaining story. <laughs> uh, and, but no, it's, it's, being able to see inherent vice and by extension and again we're getting kind of highfalutin here but whatever uh, it's a, it's, an, it's an inherent vice podcast i don't know what you think we're going to talk about you don't you don't just see the movie that way you see the world that way and, and you, you start to see through all these different sets of eyes and interpretations and experiences you could never have and it just it, it does it makes you a better person it makes you a better viewer and it makes the thing you love the work of art you love it makes it a better work of art because you're able to recognize oh shit this film could be anything and not yeah. because not because it's made so haphazardly or emptily that it's just like an empty vessel. You know, it's not just a, a splotch of black ink and you know, it's not someone just Rorschaching and telling you, yeah, it's a, it's a hippopotamus if you want it to be. Sure, whatever. No, it's, it's the, the people <laughs> behind it. And I don't think that this is hyperbole to say that Thomas Pynchon is a literary genius. And I don't yeah. think it's hyperbole to say that Paul Thomas Anderson is a cinematic genius. And you had these two geniuses come together and make this film that could be absolutely anything. And that will never not be a marvel to me. That will never not be magic to me. And in a year this rotten, that is a, it's a lifeline. It is a type of cinematic lifeline that this film that prior to this year was just kind of a sad, love, lorn, funny movie to me. It's a pandemic movie now. It's a 2020 movie now. And it's also a primer 
for how to survive in a world like this. I go all the way back early and early, very early episode with critic Drew McQueenie, who, and you'll hear him say it, you'll have heard him say it in, in the, the, the opening best of reel that we have, you know, in times of such chaos as these, it's, it's, it's acts of decency that matter most. And that's something I never saw that this film argued. Mm. Me, this person who's seen it a million times, I didn't see that this film argued that until Drew told me. And then I see that now. And I see that as we're watching it in a time of chaos. And it makes this movie even more of a life preserver. As we're all jumping off the golden bang, <laughs> trying to get to, the, get to the shore. It just makes this movie such a life preserver. And man, that's just magic. I keep using that word, but what's... What's better than that? It's 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 magic, and I and I and I love each and every one of our guests for for doing that and for showing me that, whether they intended to or not. Well, Trav, it's it's part of you know it's part of a lesson. I think that lessons can be learned and they can be lived. And I think if at the end of one eight minute, if I told anyone anything, it's like I got to see my favorite film one minute at a time through the lenses of some of the most incredible people in the world. And I learned so much and I feel enriched by that. And I think that I could have told you that at the beginning of this project that you would feel enriched by it and you wanted to, you know, pick the great guests and you'll be challenged by their opinions of the movie. And you want to have people who love or loathe this movie as part of this experience, because that's what you want. You want to enrich your, your eyes and enrich the film. But I think that now that you've lived it, and, you know, I, I get to hear, it's funny that I get to hear you like one, I'm one of the first people who gets to hear you have a revelation, like to experience the revelation of someone saying something, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, uh, you know, the, a couple of the big ones that I just think of is, you know, there's the Matt Zoller Zeitz who talks about how, you know, Bigfoot wants to be Doc and Doc wants to be Bigfoot, but they're both like, they're, they're fundamentally wrong in their assertion of what either profession actually does like or what either lifestyle actually means you know walter chaw saying like lurid acidium like uh, in reference to like this this film as in like you know you you kind of get lured in by this this feeling that it wants you to have and it's an intoxicant in many ways but also sometimes that's like a you know it's it's ultimately a failure and you know and the fascination with um you know love and to the point of destruction like angelica j bassi and i think it's you know i think for listeners too you can you sharpen your eyes and you get exposed to these things and it never is <laughs> never, you never is so much this movie is so much like i'm getting so excited i'm gonna go home and watch it again this movie is so fucking much and I'm, I'm being a very professional host i know i'm talking all over you but this movie is so much it has so fucking much to it and god if it doesn't get you excited i don't know what will especially in a time as dark as this you have it in your ability right now to watch one of the greatest works of art of the 21st century and it will be a comfort to you it was made for times like this they made it for moments like this they knew times like this were coming because times like this have always been coming and this is a movie whether you're falling in love or you're breaking up or you're afraid of getting sick, or you hate the president, or you you've lost someone, you think they might still be alive. God damn it, this movie has so much. And if you just want to see some knock knock jokes and see Joaquin Phoenix get hit in the head with a hammer, well, by God, it's got that too. It's got the best dick and fart joke <laughs> you're ever gonna see. And what a work of art. I'm sorry, Blake. I had to. I had to. I got excited. You got yeah, me. You have up. to. I, I did get you wound up and I'm just gonna ask you before you introduce like the scene that we're talking about. Would it have been better with Penny Kimball? Um <laughs> Oh I'm, God, you're one of those. No, 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 no. I'm just, look, I, I just, I was saying that to be. Penny only wants him for dirty, dirty thrills. She doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really love him. 
He is a kinky thrill. Doc is a kinky thrill tour. I Listen. love Penny. I love Penny, but they're not going to last. Shasta understands Doc. And Doc okay. Understands they, they Shasta. They, they there you understand. go. All right. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So it used to be when I thought of this movie, I thought of Doc and Shasta. I thought specifically of this scene, usually when I thought of this film. I mm. thought of Doc and Shasta. This was a Doc and Shasta movie. This is a love movie to me. It was. It was. It still is, but more than, it's all it was to me. This is a love story. And that's what I thought of is, is this scene when I thought of this movie. But you know what I think of now? And I think it's kind of beautiful. Now, instead of, think of thinking of the ending of this movie, uh, when I think of Inherit Vice, I think of the opening shot. I think of the mm. Pacific Ocean between the bungalows, the sound of waves rising and falling back. And I think of those two little kids running past to go play. I think of that. I think of that noise. I think of that freedom. And not not just that freedom of childhood, of, of, of these two kids yet untainted by the little kid blues, but of the freedom of a film still in its first scene, when it still has the chance of possibility. I, mm. A film in its first scene, it could become anything or everything. And the miracle of inherent vice is that it does. And that's something that I don't think I would have ever found on my own or seen on my own with the film just living in my big old head it's that i had to go on this journey of didianess one-on-ones with other people the way doc had to and i had to be told their stories in order to live and now now i think of this movie i don't think of i don't it's not just limited to a love movie it's an everything movie that is my final argument my final overarching argument is that it's a it's not just a, it's not about love baby it's about <laughs> It's about everything, everything baby. <laughs> what it is. And one, one last PTA impression for you all. It's about everything, baby. That, 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 it's about everything. And how many movies can you say that about? That this is truly just, it's just about life. And I'm speaking of which, speaking of which, because I am speaking to the man who got the man, M-A-N-N, twice. Twice. Mm. Blake, you son of a bitch, twice on his podcast. Um, I did want to say that I think in retrospect, and it's been a nagging thing, and you and I have gone back and forth about it, and I've, I've told you my issues with it. I mm-hmm. think it's been somewhat important that we didn't have people directly involved with Inherent Vice on the show. There were opportunities, and it's not like, and a couple of and a and a couple of significant ones too, guys, yeah. just out there. Without without sort of spoiling, there was a couple of significant people who were on the precipice of being a part of the show, and then decided we're not going to get into it. reasons why. We're not going to um, get into reasons why. It's not that I, and it's not that I didn't want PT on, and I fully admit we were we were in talks, uh, but then you know uh, the the last minute green lighting of his new film in the midst of a pandemic made that impossible. It's the same reason we unfortunately he wasn't able to be interviewed in Adam Neiman's book. The wonderful Adam Damon. Um, and I'm not saying I would never want to have him on. Of course, you know, if PTA calls me tomorrow, we're doing a whole new season of Incremental Vice. Um, but I'm <laughs> we'll do not... a bonus. We'll do we'll do a bonus episode. I don't think yeah, I think <laughs> uh, but I'm well, you know the way I talk. I can I can milk the whole season out of that one conversation. Uh, but I'm not sure how good an idea and I what and this began to really kind of complicate the idea of having people who made the film on. I'm not sure how good an idea it would be to have him look back on this because i think and i'm going to keep using this word i think the magic of this film is that it can be anything we need it to be Mm. and to be told exactly what it is 
Well, that yeah. just kind of kills it in a way. Or if I if I if I were to say well, something, jo- Jordan Jordan Rap put I think it was Jordan Rap or um one of the uh one of the new Bev boys were talking about this is like when I first wondered about your obsession about this movie, I wasn't able to appreciate yeah, it. It's Elric just that face from, uh, value. Elric. Podcast. Elric. Yeah. Elric. He said something to the effect of, and people would have heard it in the opening is like, but this isn't like anything's possible movie. Like you, you can tell anything's possible and anything can be argued. And I think that that's kind of the beauty of it. And the, and even for folks who listen to Michael Mann and myself talk at the end of one, eight minute, I wanted to talk about his experiences, but I didn't think ever that he would be prescriptive about the exact meaning of the movie because the movie had meant so much before, you know, so it's, it's, you you know, being told with PTA, you know, where he's like, it's about love baby. Well, actually, no, it's not like, I mean, it's not, (laughs) I think we can definitively say, (laughs) you imagine the blood draining from my face, the horror. If I said, this is what this movie means to me and it saved me. And he'd be like, no, no, it's just, you know, it's about politics. And, uh, you know, we just trying to make a good movie. Uh, you know, if he was dismissive, your heart would break. You'd be like, Ra- you'd be like Ralph in that scene where Lisa breaks his heart. Like, you know, the whole, I choo, choo, choose you scene where well, it's just meme to death. You just, oh. that's, that's my whole point is, you know, I'm not, by the way, I'm not comparing PTA to a, de- a deity, but if we're all sitting around trying to figure out the point of life, we're like, hey, maybe it's helping people, or hey, maybe it's falling in love. Is there anything better than falling in love? Fuck no, there's not. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And then God were to show up and go, no, no, <laughs> it's not about any of those things. It's about toiling and, un- and nigh unbearable agony of a purgatorial existence and then dying with no meaning. That's why I made this thing for shits and giggles. Love, no. So you don't want to hear that because then it ruins what's so important to you. And so I think in a way, what has made this show special is it's it's all been on the audience side, whether that audience yeah. is made, it, it, whether it's writers, whether it's directors, whether it's critics, whether it's uh, cultural commentators, whether it's other podcasters, it's it's all people who have been on the same side of the screen with this film and the wildly divergent ways in which they've been inter- able to interpret. And I think that's been the most important thing. It's been a show of interpretation, not a show in which someone with the actual knowledge comes on and says, well, no, this is actually what it is. And this is why I did it. You can read, you know, you can read. Uh, but it doesn't belong to him. For that. Yeah. Well, and, that's and, the thing. Yeah. In the nicest possible way, it's like Pynchon doesn't, Pynchon put his vision out into the world and it's articulated as clearly and as crisply as he could. And PTA put his vision out into the world and it is a synthesis of some of those ideas and an expansion. And as you said, it like kind of is a, is a, is a, a a repositioning of perspective in a way and and emphasis. Um, But how we interpret it is all on us and all on the great guests of this show. And, and that's what is actually enriched that none of those visions are wrong. Like, and, and I think what's awesome is the symphony and the chorus of all of those enriched opinions coming at you and i think that that's what we can hope for with the show is that when people are watching their favorite thing they're learning to love it in new ways with every episode exactly exactly and again i'm boy i'm gonna keep beating the same drum with this word i need to get a thesaurus how magic is that that we can that we can know a film so intimately intimately and yet, as intimately as, as two guys who have been talking about a movie for a goddamn year, we can know it as intimately as that. And yet this film still retains so much mystery. Because like you said, you know, uh, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong interpretation. But at the same time, we don't know if there's a right one. And so mm. the film's so open to potentiality, to possibility, 
to magic. God, this is a magic movie. I'm getting so excited. You know what? I was getting kind of tired. I was getting kind of tired of doing a show, but my God, I feel reborn. It's like the- Is this the what you're going to announce what your next project is? Is that how like, excited it, you are? It's, it's like the last five minutes of a Highlander movie. I'm going through a quickening here. The lightning is striking. I'm excited. I'm ready to talk about the movie for another season. Uh, I don't think anyone else is ready for that. Though. <laughs> all, all that said, and by the way, I'm very proud of myself for having not yet gotten emotional. Um, oh boy, now I'm going to. Uh, all that said, after spending all that time talking about how I realize it's not just a film about Doc and Shasta, that plot-wise, it's even more about Doc doing one good thing for little Amethyst Harlingen in an era of evil, rescuing her from the little kid blues by giving this girl, and this is where I'm going to get, <laughs> this is where I'm going to like get to you, giving her the father she never had, but always deserved. <sighs> doing that in a time of evil as well as being a film about an infinite other amount of other things. Despite all that, despite saying it's not about Doc and Shasta, where you and I, Blake, where we end up is right back here, right where it started with Larry, Doc, Sportello, and Shasta, Faye, Hepworth. Back again in their eternally contradictory state, which is alone together. Yeah. And you know what? I think we're at that place in the episode where we see them like that one more time. Remember that day? Ouija board set us off into that big storm. This feels the same way tonight. Just us. Together. Almost like being underwater. The world. Everything. Gone someplace else. Just figured it was sort of lead setting us up. No. Her Ouija board. She knows things, Doc. Maybe about us that we don't know. This don't mean we're back together. Okay, so. Oh, Any day now. Oh, God, this movie, this movie, this ending. 
Oh, okay. So uh, back in 2008, uh, Esquire magazine ran a profile on PTA, and it began with this anecdote from a childhood teacher of his, uh, Carol Stevens, who remembered him fondly as a brilliant troublemaker who always talked about being a filmmaker. And, but, but she got a little sad. She got a little sad when she recalled the following. She said, when he did Magnolia, I sent word through someone who worked with him to tell Paul it would be great if he could come back to the school for a visit. I'd love to see him. And the very cryptic answer she got from his people was, Paul doesn't go back. And she paused for a moment and she looked at the interviewer and she said, isn't that strange? Paul doesn't, <laughs> Paul doesn't go back. Paul doesn't look back. And isn't that strange, Blake? Isn't it even stranger that, that this is a man who spent three hours in one of his films declaring that the book says that we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. And then he made this certainly his most contentious and confounding film to most of his fans and critics and haters alike in which every single character is looking in the rear view mirror at their pasts with mm -hmm. regret and longing. And it makes me think that, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that thing where we try to dissect too much of the mind of the person who made this. But I think the reason that Paul doesn't go back anymore is because he is someone who knows the exquisite pain of going back and knows that siren song of wanting to go back. And I think that is why a film like this is one of his most poignant, because it's about that thing that he, I think, wrestles with and that we all wrestle with, which is that that urge to have to go back, to want to go back. And, and Can I give you a, in a Michael Mann word, a contrapuntal argument to what oh, you're saying about him right now? Do it, do it. Is that I think Paul goes back in his filmmaking that's how time. he goes back all the time. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to perhaps the emotional burden of going back and actually participating in life, you know, there's a artists are different are, are interesting people. And especially someone as un, you know, undeniably brilliant and genius as he is. I think that all of his characters are riddled with regret, even starting in Sydney. They are absolutely riddled with it. They are constantly looking back and they're chasing ahead of those things. They don't want to look back. And I think that that's like one of those things that is, is staring him in the face. And even in my most recent watch of Sydney slash heart eight, um, I, oh, uh, I, I looked at John C. Riley's, I looked at John C. Riley's character who plays John and I thought, Oh, it's Paul. Yeah. It's the most naked version and authentic Paul. He Paul is there with his mentor. Yeah. He he's he's right there. Like he this this is the guy. This is this imperfect guy who, you know, loves a girl, Clementine, who's absolutely not good for him, who makes friends with people who he's charmed by, but absolutely are destructive friends, and is graced by Sydney as a mentor, Philip Baker Hall, because just by pure luck and his mentor has the most tragic bent of all time. Like, you know, he, which we don't necessarily need to spoil. And so I think that that's all he does. His expression is looking back. And I think that when I, you know, he may not want to look back when it comes to like the physical real life things, but you it's can't really deny, all are. It's all you are. can't deny how you look back. You look back and at everything. And, and especially tumultuous moments in history and time and innovation. He, he's in. 
that's his entire expression. It is. And, and to dial that into this scene in particular, to make it about this scene, because we probably should sooner or later, something interesting, you know, this has been something of a kind of a, a retrospective episode. We keep looking back at, at this series as well as this film and, you know, talking about our journey through it. If there's, if anything has changed the most in my journey as a viewer this year, uh, any, any one single thing, not just the big broad elements we've been talking about, it's been my understanding or conception of who Shasta Faye Hepworth is, how she's grown from a plot motivator to a mystery, to a flesh and blood woman with needs and desires and humanity that Doc Bless's heart just can't seem to grasp the totality of. And this last rewatch of, of all times, it was just this last rewatch where she became in a way so fully human to me uh, because I realized she's looking back too. For the longest time, I feel like she has remained elusive to all of us, for, or to most of us. And yet it was this rewatch where I said, no, no, she's just like everyone else in this movie. She's looking back. And you know, as, as we just saw, the film ends with Doc and Shasta driving down uh, 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 Santa Monica in the middle of the night, surrounded by all this cotton candy fog of cosmic purples and pinks, uh, starred with all these nebula, these, these red dwarves of taillights in the background, and these supernovas of headlights just behind them. But there's something about this Shasta that seems so more real and concrete, not just a memory, this is the real woman, the real love, together with Doc, again, like a record, always skipping back and coming to the same place. And she's a real person again, sitting next to him, like Joan Didion or Hope Harlingen or Thomas Pichon, even Tar Charles Manson. She tells Doc a story about themselves. She tells a story about an Ouija board and a world that was once there. She tells them a story in order to live, and she has to look back with regret in order to do it. Remember that day, the Ouija board that set us off into the big storm? This feels the same way tonight, just us together, always, almost like being underwater, the world, everything, gone someplace else. And it, what that did is it made me see this scene as, yeah, she's she's no different than Doc. She's looking back to that one day in the rain. And she did it, she did it before in her postcard to Doc. And he even wondered, you know, uh, what made her think that? What made her think of that day? And the, the, the sad longing in which she says, nothing was supposed to happen this way, Doc. I'm so sorry. And... Trav, I'm going to have to be contrapuntal again. Doc's oh, alone. It, I, I swear to oh. God. It, I swear to God. If, 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 you, if you tell me this ending is hopeless, I swear, Blake. I swear. I'm Doc's alone in this... Doc's alone in this car. Oh, you're one of those, huh? You think he is? You think he's alone? You don't think this is... You think this is his idealized Shasta, you think? I have never had the opinion that he was alone in this car until this morning. Australia. Wow. Wow. We, I've never had that opinion. You and and it's two only ships in the night. I, I, it's only in the, and you know what? I'm happy for that. Like a chorus, like two divergent potential pathways, like those grooves in a record you mentioned for them, you know, this minor groove, but I'm still listening to the same, you know, I'm, I'm still experiencing that same moment, but it's just two potential possibilities. But when I watch this moment, the big question mark that I have and why so strongly taxi driver resonated with me this morning is it is exactly that it is that Shasta is so she's saying everything that doc what kind of girl do you want me to be, Doc? She is saying all the things that Doc would want her to be. 
she's mentioning the moments on the Ouija board, that magical moment that only sort of Lee, she's innermost thoughts and feelings had manifested it into his memory. And then he had expressed it into the world and sort of Lee's being real or not, as Ryan Johnson puts so wonderfully in the, his episode is immaterial to the outcome of this movie, whether you think she's imaginary or real. But if you did even for a sec split second, subscribe to the fact that she was something that was this internal figure in doc's mind and not a friend, this maybe a bit of a transient figure. The moment that Shasta mentioned Sordalish in this moment is basically if you believe that Shasta is not real, uh, if you believe that Sordalish is not real, it is the mo- it is the moment that manifests her as ah, you've got me as on the ropes. It, it's the moment that manifests her as a dream moment. She is literally fulfilling the destiny that she's fulfilling the destiny of of being in his mind and his memory. And she's literally saying all the things that he needs to hear to be that perfect thing. And why he's looking so ferociously into that rear view mirror is that he's, he's racing away in that pot fog from what his reality is. And, and, and that is why I felt hopeless because in that moment Mm. he's alone. Well, he's alone in the book. He's, he's, and I know that book. because I have the book and I was researching that too and read it and you so beautifully distilled it at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. Um, and I just was like, the the moment she mentioned Sordalish, I was hmm. like, he's alone. Oh boy. You've got and me you know on what? the ropes. You got me and on you know the what? My, you know my, what? my host with the most, Paul doesn't go back. Oh, all right, Blake. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'll give you that. that that's, a, that's a good argument. But I'm, I'm going to roll up my sleeves here. You roll know, them up. Roll them up. If a friend of we don't. Have, neither of us have to win. We can true. be like. Yeah. We, this I'm, isn't a. Uh, this isn't a win. This is. This is maturity. not about winning. This is not about winning or losing because I think you've done exquisitely, and I think that in this in this scene particularly, I. I want to believe that she's there. If there's, if there's, if, if there's, if there's, if there's justice in, if there's any kind of justice in the world, it's that she's there, but maybe 2020 has done it to me, my man. She I ain't love, there. I love how I've spent an hour talking about how enthralled I am of my guests being able to open me up to new possibilities in the movie. But the second you do that in the scene, I'm like, no, get the fuck, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. I've, I've, I've been, I've been so pontificating and pretentious about how amazing that is. But the second you challenge my worldview, I'm like, no, no okay it is the final episode sometimes it takes you sometimes (laughs) it takes you time to process i get it i've been the guy on the other end of the mic where you have blown my freaking brains out and i've gone son of a bitch that's a great point thank you that that that, that, thank you that's a pretty ace argument i will admit and i this is normally the time of the episode where my mind would be blown like oh my god (laughs) but you know what i'm not gonna let you do it i'm not gonna (laughs) let you take hope away from me not now when things are as dire and strange and scary and weird and sad as they are i'm gonna make my case to you you watch this scene doc keeps looking back multiple times in the sequence we see light from over his shoulder catching in the rear view catching his attention Mm. drawing his eyes which with the way the scene is framed has him looking directly at us when he looks in the mirror, which I love because throughout this show, myself and others have noted how much doc is us and we are doc. He's our surrogate in this madness. So of course, when he looks in the mirror, he's going to see you and me. He's going to see every guest on the show and everyone at home that watches it. What does the scene also do? This scene, like so many others, is this film in microcosm. It shows the circuitousness of time end of life there's always something in the past that's going to catch your attention some bright light 
And I know many guests, as yourself, have argued that this scene is a, a, a kind of a downer, kind of a repetitious, purpose, purposefully repetitious, uh, eternal of the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of ending. That these two are stuck in a rut or a loop, whether alone or not, uh, with Doc in Shasta, even exchanging and repeating their post-sex joke to another. This don't mean we're back together. Of course not. But, Blake, as Donk is lost in the fog, continually distracted by that bright light from the past, I do believe that Shasta is next to him. And what does he do here? What does he do with Shasta at his side? He keeps driving forward. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't pull over like he considers doing in the book, hoping for a restless blonde to appear driving a stingray in the fog. He keeps moving forward into the future. And while the repetition of the line about not being back together and the rising sound of Chuck Jackson's any day now, hints that any day now his love may leave him again. And that this is the loop that the two of them will forever live out. I don't know. I find a hope there. A knowing hope. Doc's little smirk and his chuckle as he looks at us makes me think he sees it too. For the first time, Doc gets the story that's being told. Our clueless and befuddled Doc gets the story for the first time. And I think he gets it because Shasta's there with him. He gets the joke. And maybe what he sees here is that life is just like a record that plays and skips back to the same place. And that maybe that's okay if you've got the right person dancing to that music with you or riding shotgun, listening to KHJ as you drive alongside the Pacific, that maybe it's okay. In a world of inherent vice where eggs break, glass shatters, and chocolate melts, maybe that's enough because it has to be. I don't think, I don't think he his idealized version of Shasta would be so world-weary and melancholy otherwise. I think he is simply sitting next to this woman who he recognizes is imperfect, who he now recognizes cannot be insured because of inherent vice, and he is okay with it because she's the one he loves. And so he's okay writing out this loop with her because it's with her. Note how the master, a film that is extraordinarily similar to this one, ends with Freddie and master unable to move forward to that place together, that repetitious place together. Freddie mumbling, maybe in the next life, they'll get it right. Well, here we have PTA playing out that same old song on the record player, except this time the two people in love are side by side, riding out in that fog. And isn't it, isn't it curious how in his next film, Phantom Thread, <laughs> ends for its two lovers? So I hear what you're saying. But when I watch this ending, I see two people who are struggling, but I also see two people who there is the that, that knowing smirk and chuckle of recognition and the acknowledgement of their loop together and the acceptance of it. Because if you're going to be in this loop and you're going to listen to that record play, this is the person you want to be dancing with you to it. And by God, I'm, I'm that's what I'm taking with me when I watch this ending. That is that is what I have to take with me in a year, in a year this bad. I have to, I have to believe that Shasta is really there. And I have to believe that Doc knows there might be some pain ahead, but it's okay because Shasta Faye is worth it. And the way that she looks at him is as mysterious and coy as she is. The fact that she looks back to 
I think she's thinking Doc's worth it too. So we're gonna have to agree to disagree, brother. That's, that's, that's I was just I gonna say I, I I I want to ride out with you in the sunset of this ending, <laughs> the way that you view it. Oh boy, hey, this has been fun, hasn't it? We, you, we've had fun. We've had fun. We've had a blast, my friend. You've been wonderful. Oh, get out of here. But yeah, that's I. I know there's this ending. It's the scene. It's a short one. There's not much to do other than just say that that's your piece. That's mine. And I'm going to try to be the good host and uh, not ask you to delete your entire argument uh, <laughs> in the edit so that I sound, but no, no, I, I think it's a really ace argument. I, I, I love the connection you make to Sori Liege, but yeah, when I, I watch this ending and I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's two people kind of recognizing, look, we're not, we're not perfect. But for the first time, that's the thing. For the first time in the movie, it's like Doc recognizes that Shasta's not perfect. She's no longer the fantasy. She's no longer the girl with the flower, the bottom half of a flower print bikini and a country girl oh. fish t-shirt. She's no longer perfect. The, the, the perfect version of her that didn't exist, the version that he thought needed rescuing. Instead, now she's just a flesh and blood woman who's fucked up and done some fucked up things just like he has. And he's able to yeah, get distracted by the light that keeps coming from behind. But what does he do? He keeps Maybe she's the light forward. that's coming from behind. Maybe he, may, hey, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, baby. But Maybe, that's, baby. That's, that's the greatness of this movie. That's the greatness of this ending is that fog could be anything. That light could be anything. Shasta Faye could be anything. But to me, to me, to me, I wouldn't say that this is a happy ending like people, you know, running off into the sunset holding hands. But this is as happy this is happy a movie as a weary world of inherent vice. As <laughs> happy an ending as a weary world of inherent vice allows is two people driving off into the fog, alone, together. That's about as good as it gets in this world. And well, I'm so I don't know about pleased, you, but I'll take so it. Pleased. I think Doc will too. I think I'm Doc so pleased you chose me to drive off into the fog with you on the show. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, as we're wrapping up here, I, I just really quickly. And I'm, I'm so proud of myself. I didn't cry. I'm a big boy. Um, uh, <laughs> in, in the episode 165 of One Heat Minute, I did cry. You a did. Lot. Well, I, I, Chad made me cry. Chad got all the tears out of me. And I, 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 will, ask, I will also admit that I've been very emotional and teary today. I, 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 I thought I was really excited to actually be done thinking about this movie and talking about this movie. And then all day I have been a mess. It's kind of <laughs> sad that this year is over. But I just, I have to say to everyone who has listened to the, to the show over the course of this very strange year it has meant the world to me that you have done so uh the messages of you that you've sent the hours that you've listened i won't forget it i know that blake won't either it no. has meant the absolute world to me and to our amazing guests i want to say thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you for coming on for giving your time and attention to such a dizzyingly nerdy endeavor and this is where i'm gonna get weepy uh, and I also have to say, again, thanks to our good buddy, Kat, who who narrated us through this madness. Amazing. With our cool-ass DJ, Jiminy Cricket, sort of liege, and I love her for it. And to you, sir, like, you, you came to me at a very strange and fraught time in my life, <laughs> and uh, you, you offered me a, a show uh, that has very weirdly given my life a shape and a purpose in this very strange year and you have allowed me to meet genuine life heroes of mine like ryan johnson megan abbott my god um, my goodness and you've also become an extraordinarily important friend 
to me in that time. And th this, this show has been absolutely nothing but a gift day in and day out. Even when I've been tired and bitchy, uh, <laughs> this show has been an absolute gift. And the, the way it has allowed me to see this wonderful work of art that I adore so, so, so very much. It has been, it's just been absolutely amazing. Um, so thank you again to the listeners, to the guests, to Kat, to Blake, and to you listening. You know who you are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as a final prayer, as we make our exits here, may all daughters find their missing fathers. May all wayward detectives reunite with their ex-old ladies. May we all find that one good thing. And may we do it and do it well. Not quite do-gooders, but may we do good all the same. May the fog of this year burn off. And may something else this time somehow be there instead. We'll see what we can see. And I'll catch you further down the road in that place where the fog has cleared. Now, come on, Blake. Like Godzilla says to Mothra, let's go eat someplace. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, and just like that, here we are at the end. Or is it? Maybe the inherent vice of time isn't just that you can't insure against it. Maybe it's that when the record skips back to the same place again, the song is a little different this time. Because you're different. And each spin can be a little different. And even if it can be a little different, maybe it can be a little better this time. And next time. And the next. I don't know. But a gal sure does like to hope. So sure, this is the end for now. But you know how that damned record player always likes to skip back. So we'll see what we can see every single time we watch Inherent Vice. Love will let me die.